HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Farm Report, where we talk about the nitty-gritty of agriculture and food production each week. I'm your host, Holly Cedarholm, and I could not be more excited to be broadcasting live from Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You may or may not have heard, I'm hosting the show for the winter 2016 season. If you're missing Aaron Fairbanks, tune in to HRN's Week in Review, which airs Wednesdays at 2 p.m., Erin, alongside her co-host Jack Inslee, the executive producer here at the studio, distills the entirety of the week's show into a single serving. It's not to be missed. Today, I'm delighted to have another in-studio guest, second one in a row, um, Lori Flores. Lori Flores grew up in South Texas before attending Yale and Stanford universities and becoming a history professor at Stony Brook University. She teaches courses on and writes about the histories of Latinos in the United States, labor and immigration, the American working class, the West, and the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. I've asked Lori here today to talk about her first book, published in 2016 by Yale University Press, Grounds for Dreaming, Mexican-Americans, Mexican Immigrants, and the California Farmworker Movement is billed as a sweeping critical history of how Mexican communities in agricultural California fought for equality and respect in a hostile climate of labor repression and xenophobia. Lori, welcome to The Farm Report. Thanks so much, Holly. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, well, we're happy to have you here. Um, so I just wanted to start off by getting a little bit of context. So largely your book is set in California and more specifically a region consisting of about 240,000 acres located along the state's central coast. This is known as the Salinas Valley, and it's heralded as one of the most productive agricultural regions in California, and it's earned nicknames such as the Salad Bowl of the World. 
So when I'm thinking of factors attributing to the success of agriculture and specifically this region, as a, as a farmer, I think in terms of agronomics, I'm thinking like it's a year-round temperate climate. There's sunshine. Um, the rich river valley has left this beautiful soil. I'm not thinking about the huge role that Mexican immigrants and Mexican-Americans play in shaping this multi-billion dollar industry. So maybe you can start to clarify some of that. Um, can you summarize for us how agricultural, California's agricultural system came to rely on this workforce? Absolutely. Um, you're exactly right that, you know, these things that made the Salinas Valley and this central coastal part of California really attractive to agriculturalists was this perfect combination of factors. It was that fertile soil. It was, you know, the, the wind and the breezes from the Pacific Ocean that really make um, the temperatures cool down at night, but stay sort of temperate during the days. And Migrant workers often call the Salinas Valley La Crema, the cream. It's Ooh. where you want to be. It's where you want to be working because you'll always have work because there's always something to be grown at each time of the year. Because, you know, if you walk into your supermarket, um, your local store, you see those prepackaged salads or those vegetables that say they're from Salinas or packaged in the Salinas Valley. It is where we get over um, 90% of, you know, stuff like lettuce, salad crops. This is where we're getting the food we eat every day. And in other parts of California, the wine we're drinking yeah. um, and other things that we have on our tables and in our restaurants. And the ways in which Mexican origin people, both U.S.-born Mexicans and immigrant Mexicans, kind of come into this story and come into this history is around the 19 teens, 1920s, um, the Mexican Revolution happens in the 19-teens. Lots of Mexican migrants are coming up north and blending in with the Californios, the Spanish-Mexican-American people who were annexed after the war we had with Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so previously, farm workers in California and in the American West were Native Americans, um, Asian Americans specifically, Chinese, Japanese, Filipinos, mm -hmm. and Mexicans sort of come in as this new workforce um, that is not only migrating because of the trauma and chaos of the revolution, but also um, they are already kind of part of the landscape anyway, as, as workers and people who want to be working on the land. So they've all ended up here um, as looking for employment. There's, you know, some geopolitical things going on. But how do they get to be, um, how, do, how do they get to sort of take over the workforce? Like, why are, um, why are they the general population that's being so heavily relied upon in this specific region? Well, it's something that happens because of two things. One is the upward mobility of some of these previous waves of workers, like Asian Americans move into other sectors of agriculture, like they become the tractor drivers or um, foremen or irrigators, and they're not necessarily the manual labor that's being used in the fields anymore. Um, Japanese workers were, first of all, really favored for being these domestic obedient laborers, hmm. but then over time... Um, because they got so successful at leasing land in California and cultivating a lot of great crops, um, Anglo-American farmers started looking at them as an economic threat. And so they kind of dropped out of the scene as farm workers and um, through various Asian exclusion laws, immigration laws that were passed in the country, um, they, along with Filipinos over time, kind of 
not totally disappear, but their numbers certainly dwindle. And Mexican origin people become this new desired workforce because of these ideas that they will be the new tractable, obedient workers in the fields. Um, so one thing, and, and we were talking before the show about the, the clarification of this for me, um, so there are different groups of workers that we're talking about. And your book really focuses on the 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 Mexican population coming from some Mexican nationals who have immigrated into the country and then Mexican American people who have been born here to Mexican parents. Um, and so those are broken down further into the ways that they're um, legally allowed to be in the country. So there are, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's such a complex population. Like you said, we have both immigrants and we have citizens. So the the immigrants or the migrants that are coming from Mexico are sort of divided into different categories. First of all, beginning with World War II, we had uh, legally imported guest workers called braceros, um, which translated from Spanish literally means men who work with their arms. Brazos, strong armed <laughs> men. Um, and so this program, the Bracero program, lasted for almost a quarter of a century. It started in 1942, didn't end until 1964. And it was originally just supposed to last for World War II that we were bringing in um, our Mexican allies to help us harvest our food for the war and you know to send to soldiers abroad. So braceros definitely are a big part of the labor landscape at this time. We import, on average, about 200,000 per year during the life of the program. So it's this flood of men coming in legally. And then on the other hand, we have this parallel stream of undocumented immigrants coming in, either because they are impatient with the bracero program and desperately need to uh, sustain their family life and um, provide their families with some money. And so they kind of jump the line, so to speak, and immigrate illegally across the border. Um, or people who were braceros, but whose labor contracts expired, and they just decided to stay in the country and not go back to Mexico. So we have this kind of legal, illegal distinction going on there. And um, what does that look so that you said the Brasero program ended um, in 1964. So then we've since sort of replaced that with um, the H-2A visa program. So we still have this, quote unquote, legal way to get um, farm laborers, intermittent farm laborers on on sort of a migratory basis. They um, I don't know much about this program. I've only read a little bit about it, but essentially it's for visas for um, agricultural workers to come in when there's a need on a farm that can't be filled by citizens. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else we should know about the the visa program? Yeah, it's a really important (laughs) program, and I'm so glad you brought it up. Um, The H-2A guest worker program has been in effect for a while, and it's a way basically that we've kind of reincarnated the Bracero program in some respects. So the H-2A program is similar in that employees are tied to one employer. And that really makes it hard if there's any labor grievances to be filed. A lot of these workers are apprehensive that if they complain about anything like wages or housing or treatment, that they might just all of a sudden lose that visa and get deported and not have a chance to keep working. Um, And the H-2A visa program 
for the most part, we're still giving it to Mexican laborers. Um, over 90% of H-2A visas are still granted to Mexico, although we do have workers from other countries as well. Um, we have the H-2B program, but which is for a totally different sector of the economy. I believe it's technolo- technology workers. Um, but the H-2A program is a way that we're continuing to... Um, have a Bracero program in a sense. It's not entirely the same, but a lot of things are similar. And what are some of the, um, you started to draw upon some of the issues in having um, such a program. Um, And your book, I should mention, um, has a great, um, great, very thorough account, um, starting back to that is really the past. When 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 do you start the timeline that you're approaching in your book? It's like the nineteen. It's around 20, the nineteen twenties, thirties. Yeah. So starting in the nineteen twenties up until present, you've sort of really analyzed the history of this. So there's there's this really great coverage of all of these different grievances that have evolved over time with mm-hmm. um, the Brasero program, and some of them have been resolved, I'm presuming, but some of them might have been reincarnated with the H-2A visa. So what are some of the challenges that you're seeing um, these guest workers enrolled in the visa program today are dealing with? Yeah, that's a great question. We are still seeing a lot of similar problems. Um, So one, for instance, is housing. Back in the days of the Bracero program, a lot of these workers were sort of segregated off into their own labor camps, which were really most of the time situated outside of city limits. They didn't have any interaction with the, quote, normal everyday residents of the communities they worked for. But that really served to stigmatize them as these masses of Mexican men, which in some people's minds they kind of ran with this stereotype of, you know, these men, if they're all together, they're trouble for our communities, or they're somehow um, criminal, or there's a potential for sexual deviancy, or, you know, these kinds of stereotypes that surrounded um, the figure of the Mexican man. And so we're still seeing that type of segregated housing and those stereotypes around um, immigrant workers as somehow threatening in some way. And we've certainly heard that in anti-immigrant rhetoric, especially recently, around this idea of the criminal Mexican. So that is really harmful. I mean, ideas are just as harmful as um, any sort of physical violence. I think they still do that type of violence to these people. Um, And uh, the other thing that I thought of was housing, Um, the housing conditions themselves. Some of these uh, living quarters are super cramped dilapidated. A lot of the guest workers we had in um, post-Katrina New Orleans, for instance, were living in very dilapidated quarters when they were rebuilding that city. So we're still seeing a lot of injustice when it comes to just basic living conditions as well as wages. Um, So that brings me to a quote that really stood with me when I was reading one of your recent articles that was published in November 2015 in the Detroit Free Press. You write, American farm workers' lives are nasty, brutish, and short. Their long days of backbreaking labor, lack of health care and rest breaks, and continued exposure to dangerous pesticides mean that their average life expectancy is only 49 compared to the national average of 79. I want to pause on that statistic. The average life expectancy of a farm worker is 30 years less than the, the national average. Um, so... Some of the things that you've just brought up, while they are damaging, like um, the the thoughts of, and you know the stereotypes and that sort of thing, they're not necessarily reducing. Um, poor housing could be a huge hazard, but they're not 
what you know what are the contributions um, and the largest risks that are contributing to this sh- very shortened lifespan um, compared to the national average? Yeah, well, the the last thing you mentioned, the pesticides. I mean, pesticides are incredibly um, harmful, and thankfully, a lot more people are paying attention to this issue. Um, and especially the organic food movement is something that's really helping reduce the amount of chemicals we're finding out in our fields, but the struggle isn't over. So um, pesticides are certainly a problem. Um, Many farm workers, around either 10 to 20,000 farm workers die per year because of pesticide-related issues. So yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a big problem. And um, farm workers' children are born all the time with birth defects or deformities, um, probably most likely related to pesticide exposure in the mother. So this is certainly something that we need to pay attention to. And um, especially those people who, you know, are around farm worker communities. I mean, this is not just something that's harming the workers themselves very severely, but it's also something that even if you're not a farm worker, you should care, you know, especially if you're around um, places where these chemicals are being used. Well, yeah, it seems like um, from what I've read, and I don't know the statistics based on, um, so we it seems like most of the agricultural workforce that we have is undocumented. And you were saying mm-hmm. something in terms of 97% earlier when we were off air and about 3% is filled in by these H-2A guest workers. But I've, what I've read about the H-2A guest workers is they really um, sort of discriminate towards younger male populations because they don't want to bring in, and correct me, um, if I'm wrong here, um, they don't want to necessarily bring in people with families because there's a sort of sister visa, the H4, that um, puts an added expense onto or an added complication maybe onto the um, the employers that are employing these people. So it seems like the I'm curious about with the birth defects, if those are coming mm-hmm. directly from the, if you know, um, they're coming from women that are working in the fields or just women that are having exposure through their their partners mm-hmm. being exposed in the field. It seems like either way, it could be devastating. <laughs> either way, um, but so many women are out working in the fields today, especially in California and other um, places where there's really big agricultural hubs. So um, these women could be undocumented. These women could be citizens who just grew up in farm worker families and continue to work out in the fields. So it's, it's not just... Uh, you know, exposure through the partner coming home with these kind of pesticide residue on their clothes. It's actually women themselves working out in the fields. And that's why you see people with bandanas all over their faces trying to shield themselves as much as possible. But even then, you cannot escape um, exposure. And do so. One thing is, who is regulating this? Good question. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny, but it's it's just crazy that there yeah. there are people who are trying to cover their faces with bandanas to that are just probably sopping up all of the chemicals yeah. they're being exposed to and not really acting as a barrier other than maybe some like mental fixation that this might reduce some of the risk. But so who who is regulating the? Um, the farm worker and the guest workers, does that fall under state or federal? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is why it's so important to recognize that the farm worker justice movement has so much more to accomplish and we need so much more um, attention and support paid to this issue is because the government, both at the federal and state levels, Uh, does not have the resources and is not giving the staff 
to monitor and regulate these kinds of laws that are put into place. We do have protective laws in place, but it's just the enforcement, the regulation, the monitoring, and imposing punishments on employers that violate the laws that we do have. So, for instance, you know, state laws have protections um, regarding the transportation of farm workers. You have to have safe vehicles to take them from field to field or um, to take them back and forth between work sites. And a lot of uh, individual employers do not follow these laws, but the state governments are not imposing the punishments um, that these violations should garner. And likewise, you know, I just read a recent blog post from someone who works in the U.S. Department of Labor saying we are not doing our job as well as we could be. So to have somebody in the government admitting that this is a really nationwide problem that is sometimes just put onto the state governments, which then just puts it on the regular everyday employers who then blame middlemen like labor contractors. It's like this trickling down of blame that doesn't really result in anybody looking out very consistently for the worker. Yeah. Um, I just want to sort of double back on something that you said about the transportation Mm -hmm. um, being so transportation is one of the issues and safety issues that farm workers face and the regulation um, of it. Um, So one thing that in looking through um, your recent book, um, Grounds for Dreaming, there was a story that caught my eye, particularly about how um, some of these transportation issues came to light. And I was wondering if you can give a little recap of this famous account. Yeah, this is sort of a climactic point in the book. And it was one of the very first big cases that I came across um, and that I knew I wanted to write about because I just thought it was so important. So it was 1963, um, more than 50 years ago. And It was in this little town in the Salinas Valley of California called Chular, and a group of braceros, um, and later we would find out there was a couple of undocumented workers in this labor bus with them. Uh, This labor bus, which was really shoddily constructed, it was this sort of um, vehicle with like a makeshift canopy on top of it to make it seem like a bus, but it wasn't really as protected as it could have been. Uh, The workers were... Um, confined in the compartment and couldn't really communicate with the driver, the foreman who was driving them home to their labor camp after working out in the celery fields um, and other vegetable fields. So they came to this unmarked railroad crossing and the driver heard a train whistle but didn't see a train and so he tried to get over the tracks but he was too late. Um, A freight train carrying a bunch of sugar beets, ironically, so like a train carrying crop. Agricultural product, yeah. Yeah, just crashes into this bus, shears it in half, like people, work tools, everything go flying. And um, it's one of the, I think at the time, the U.S. Department of Transportation called it the largest fatal vehicle accident in the history of California. It was just incredibly... Um, grisly and really traumatic for the people who survived it, Um, obviously for the families who lost somebody in there. And these families in Mexico wouldn't even know that they had lost somebody for several days or weeks. Oh, my God. Because the news... Because of the... And especially if anyone who's undocumented, like you said, there were a couple of undocumented workers, the fact that news wouldn't trickle back Yeah, the news couldn't reach them. and, And supervisors probably... 
knew most braceros only by their work number. So it took the FBI coming into California to use the fingerprints they had gotten from these men upon immigrating to identify who these victims were. So it killed three dozen, almost three dozen people. And uh, I write about it because I think it was a trauma that really accelerated the nation talking about, you know, we need to end this program if it's going to be so poorly regulated that this kind of thing is happening, that people are dying on American soil um, just because an employer wanted to shave off a few dollars by not having a legitimate boss. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it's a terrible story. Um, Well, on that note, we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll explore a little more about farm workers rights. song is Journey from Lime Rock by Slow Roasters. We're coming back to the Farm Report momentarily. Tuned in to the Farm Report. Joining us today is Lori Flores, Assistant Professor of History at Stony Brook University. We've been discussing Lori's first book, Grounds for Dreaming Mexican Americans, Mexican Immigrants, and the California Farmworker Movement, released in 2016 from Yale University Press. All right, so we were talking a bit about some of the terrible, quite frankly, conditions that farm workers are facing in the United States. Um, Predominantly, we're talking about the Brasero program, which ended um, in uh, 64. In 64. Um, But then some of the likenesses to that program that the H2 visa program still channels workers into. What I'm wondering is with all of these terrible conditions, we've got, I mean, we didn't even go into, I'm sure, the full (laughs) gamut of things that these workers are up against. We've got shoddy housing, risky transportation, mm-hmm. um, low wages. Um, I'm sure there's not great compensation for healthcare, if at any. If any, <laughs> yeah. No um, kind of um, a lot of harassment when it comes to any sort of unionization, uh, sexual harassment for women, rape. Dis- I mean, all of these things dis- are Discrimination, pesticide exposure. So there's this yeah. whole awful mix of things that these people are getting pitted up against when they're just trying to make a living wage um, and take care of themselves, their families, um, be gainfully employed. So why why are these Mexican-American and Mexican, Mexican immigrant farm workers still continuing to work in these conditions? Like, what's happening here? Well, I think several things are at play here. I, I think before um, we uh, got on the air, we were talking about how um, agriculture and farm worker 
positions have sort of become stereotyped or thought of in modern society in the 21st century as an immigrant occupation. And so I think that whenever anyone from Mexico or now we have a lot more Central American migration happening, these immigrants knowing they're going to come into American society at the bottom of the economic ladder, think what kind of industries will I get a fast entry into and start making money quickly. And farm work is one of them. Of course, service industries like in restaurants or in um, other, you know, sort of cleaning, low, or cleaning like you know, domestic work, these low wage economic sectors where you don't necessarily need to go through a lot of paperwork. Um, the, this is why we keep on seeing this continual influx of Latin American workers into farm labor. And I, I also think it's a it's a two way street. So employers prefer these workers and are actually asking for them over other types of workers, say, from the Caribbean. Because farm work, especially on the East Coast, used to be a heavily African-American and Caribbean-dominated workforce, and that has totally changed um, into a predominantly Mexican and Central American workforce. And you're saying that they, they're just getting, um, this population is getting a reputation of being a more valuable worker so that they're more highly desired by the employer. Yeah, highly desired, be- and in large part because they are afraid to talk back. They're afraid to leave, and they see this as a way to s- escape whatever turmoil they're fleeing from in their home country or support their families back home. Yeah, and it seems like... Um, a lot of people are probably entering the country um, with a considerable amount of debt based on how they've, if they've had to pay um, sort of the immigration debt, you know, if they're getting trafficked, um, mm-hmm. not tra- trafficked is the wrong word, smuggled into right. the country, they a lot of times are incurring um, huge expenses that they might have to pay back like immediately or, yeah. or if they have families to support, it just seems like it's just the it's, they're they're just willing to work, unfortunately, um, in conditions that are less than desirable. Um, so we've established that these conditions are alarming. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, in the light of, the, I'm sort of in the place where we are right now as a country and a society where food is kind of everywhere, like good food, fair food. It's becoming just a lot of attention. Um, is getting you know it's all on social media it's all over the tv like everyone wants to like eat well and it's it's great so more and more consumers care about where their food is coming from and how it's grown um they want food with a smaller carbon footprint food that's grown without pesticides food that isn't genetically engineered but why aren't we talking about who is producing our food and the sort of social justice aspect of that so One thing I'm wondering, do you see a connection existing between the organic and local food movements and the farm worker justice movement? And how, if so, if there is a connection, how do we encourage stronger connections? Um, And if there's not, where do we start? Yeah, I I think we're starting to see more than in the past people caring about connecting the discourse around these two movements. It's not just about the food. It's about the people who are helping this food get to you. And uh, I think that we all need to remember that organic or local doesn't necessarily equate to fair 
and ethical labor standards. And I think one way in which we can start bringing these two movements together and start talking about them in tandem is if when you go to your farmer's market, ask about the workers too, and not just about um, the conditions under which the food is grown. How about the conditions under which the people who harvested that food um, had to deal with or endure? And But what if you're, so that's great if you're going and getting, if you're focusing on local food and you're going to the right. farmer's market, which a lot of times at some of these um, more urban markets, I've noticed they're kind of, the farmers are sending in employees too, who right. might not necessarily even work at the farm. They might just mm-hmm. be like the market liaison to the farm. Um, but so what happens when you're going to the grocery store and you want to buy your organic spinach grown in the Salinas Valley? Like where, how do we start to raise, you know, you, you don't have anyone to ask questions. Yeah, um, I know. So, so where, where do you see bridging the gap there when you're buying more of this large scale organic produced food? Well, this is where um, it requires us to do a bit of research before we even go to the store while we're in the store. I mean, it, when we talk about social media, we're not only talking about like beautiful Instagrams of the great food you're eating, but a lot of these farm worker organizations, the people who are trying to do things in terms of unionizing workers, gaining a fair wage for certain workers, like the Coalition of Immokalee Workers in Florida has done a lot for tomato workers because of its consistent and persistent targeting of places like Burger King or Taco Bell or these other chains that are using tomatoes. So I think when you're trying to make a choice between which producer you want to buy your food from, whether it's in the supermarket or in person at a farmer's market, um, there are some ways in which you can link into these farm worker organizations or farm worker justice organizations on social media, on their websites. They they would um, probably do their best to have a list of ethical food producers. And thankfully, a lot of um, CSAs are now trying to include that information in, in what they are giving people when they sign up for them. And what are some of the, um, if you were kind of highlighting what would be a really great agricultural justice program platform, like what are some of the things, what are some of the rights that you would outline that people should be looking for when they're making decisions to support um, fair farm worker standards? What are some of the things you're looking at? Well, some of the things I would look at is, you know, first of all, a living wage, um, because we certainly can't take that for granted. And more often than not, these farm workers are not making the proper wage for the incredibly hard manual labor that they're doing. Um, A day of rest is really important and something that the agricultural industry is immune from having to provide, Uh, you know, along with a minimum wage. uh, There is no overtime pay for agricultural workers. Employers are not required to give it. So if there's an employer who gives a day of rest or who gives overtime pay or um, who, if the farm workers are living in company housing, how well is that housing maintained or upkept? And um, in addition to that, how much uh, can farm workers um, talk to and communicate with their employer if there is a case of mistreatment or a particular grievance in the fields? And also rest breaks, water, toilets, produ- you know, provided. We're, we're talking out in the about field. very basic, very basic things. things. Yeah, and it's it's very sad that here we are, and these are things that are not being offered fairly. Yeah, um, consistently across the board. There, are, I'm not saying all. Employers are doing this, but we are certainly finding a lot of cases where this is just going totally neglected. The most basic comforts, not even comforts, but the basic rights you should have um, as a worker during your workday. 
So knowing this, I'm interested, you're, you're talking about how we can be educated shoppers, knowing all that you know um, about the food, how do you shop? Where, where, you know, what precautions are you taking when you're, when you're securing your own provisions? Yeah, I, I try to be really conscious about looking at the producers. So um, there was one point in which there was a huge strawberry boycott. I think it was last year um, against Driscoll strawberries, which um, provides strawberries from, you know, everyone from like Safeway to Trader Joe's. I mean, all of these places are, are you know, importing um, things from this particular producer. So I'm always just trying to stay up on the news of boycotts, strikes, anything that's going on. Unfortunately, because of the lack of unions, we don't see any union labels. We don't see any sort of things that back in the 60s with Cesar Chavez and the UFW, people would be, you know, like, I only buy UFW grapes or I'm not going to buy lettuce. What does UFW stand for? Uh, the United Farm Workers, probably the most famous farm workers union um, we had in our country, but uh, they still exist today, but just do not have the power and the support behind them that they once did. Um, so what, um, where do you see these reforms coming in? Like what, what's happening right now in terms of, is there, what can we look for in terms of policy changes? Do you, do you have hope for this? Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. I do have hope, especially that we're coming up, you know, on a presidential election and, you know, hopefully the issue of immigration is going to stay on the table. We've had a lot of years pass with no bipartisan uh, success at reform. But if the majority, if over, if close to 90 or even over 90 percent of our farm workers today are undocumented, there needs to be reform in immigration policy in order to then affect the rights that those people would have in our country as recognized workers. If there's no policy that recognizes the vulnerabilities of undocumented immigrants in this country, there's no way their labor rights are going to be addressed if they're not even seen as people worth paying attention to. Yeah, that's a very, that's a very good point. And. Um, what are there? Um, so it seems to me like the agricultural industry could really play um, a pivotal role in some of these immigration reforms. Do you have any specific in- instances of policy reform that have happened as a result of farm workers? Uh, most of the reforms that I've um, been hearing about are through individual employers. So they're happening at a very local level. So some workers are definitely gaining victories when it comes to their personal employers. Um, But when it comes to sort of federal mandates or state mandates, we really need to work on having state laws. Um, And New York is trying to pass such a thing, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which has failed many times in uh, the New York legislature, but that we need to pay attention to if if states can start um, enforcing and regulating and monitoring more of these laws, maybe we can get to a more hopeful national position on this. Yeah. Does New York have um, a large farm worker, guest worker in terms of the the country? They do employ a lot. Yeah, of- New York does employ a lot. It's certainly up there. And um, if you go upstate, you know, Hudson Valley, um, the apples, the wine industry, I mean, you can find workers there. Um, you know, they've been there for decades. And um, and all over the Northeast, really, the Atlantic seaboard, really everywhere in our country, there is some agricultural hub to pay attention to um, that a lot of these guest workers and undocumented workers can be found in. So no matter where you live, it's an important it's issue. A, it's a, yeah, it's an issue wherever. Um, so I wanted to end on a little bit of a personal note. So in reading through your book, um, 
one a couple of things uh, struck me. So the narrative of California, far, the California farm worker, is deeply complex, as we've heard a little bit here today, um, socially and politically. And you perform a thorough and vivid historical analysis of this movement from we're saying the 1940s to about present day um, in Grounds for Dreaming. I have to wonder if you also draw upon your own heritage. You dedicated the book to your late father, Alfredo H. Flores, who grew up Mexican-American in Texas. And according to the acknowledgement in your book, dropped out of school in the eighth grade to save the family farm. So how, if at all, has your family's own agrarian history influenced your your desire to write this book, um, your passion for these issues. So I thought maybe we could talk about that. For oh, a that's really nice of you to notice that. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was something that I didn't realize right away was informing why I was so passionate about writing this book. Um, being from Texas, someone writing a book on California, you don't automatically think there's a connection there. And for me, at first, there wasn't. I just found some interesting cases and about issues around racial and labor justice that I thought were important. But as I thought about it, and as I was finishing writing this book, I realized that, you know, my own family and the stories I would hear from my father at the kitchen table when I was little, I wasn't, you know, really absorbing them until much later when I was learning about um, the situation of farm workers today and just labor justice movements in general. And the, the ways in which he you know, had to leave school in the eighth grade, dropped out, had to help his father, you know, with their small farm, which, you know, they were, they lived out on a little parcel of a big ranch out in South Texas. And I remember I found, I came across some document a few days ago, they had bought 10 cows for something like 160 bucks. And they were, you know, not a bad deal. (laughs) Not a bad deal. They were, you know, um, raising these cows and trying to make um, a life for themselves out in, you know, this kind of rural area. And he eventually went back to school in his um, early 30s, became a teacher, and just always cared about making sure education was something that the next generation, meaning me and my sister, that we would focus on that so we wouldn't have to do the hard physical labor that he did. So uh, that's a story that I hear constantly in a lot of Latino families in the U.S. today is that the parental or the grandparents' generation did this work in the fields in the hopes that their children would not have to. But now what we're seeing is, you know, these different generations, these immigrant generations and flows that are impacting our country, shaping our culture all the time. I mean, it's this is not just like a one-way sort of imposition of Americanness upon the immigrant. It's the immigrant upon the American, right? Yeah. It's um, this really... Um, interesting cultural and social exchange that I think more people could afford to see the positive in trying to reform what could be um, a more equal society. Oh, well, that, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, we're coming to the close of another episode of the of the Farm Report. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Lori, it was a pleasure having you in the studio today. To find out more about Lori's work and where you can get a copy of her first book, Grounds for Dreaming, visit lauriaflores.com Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.